Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by David Winstanley, Chief Executive of London Biggin Hill Airport, London's only dedicated business aviation airport. David, hello. Hello, Matthew. How are you? I am well. Thank you for joining us today. Now, normally the show is entirely about leadership, but considering everything else is at the moment, uh, we need to discuss COVID-19 to start off with. How has this affected uh, Biggin Hill? Um, Like many elements in the aviation industry, the airport has been um, affected. Um, However, Matthew, we made some critical decisions at the start of the crisis Uh, And one was to remain open. And that might seem somewhat of a a simplistic uh, response um, when many of your your listeners are are listening to what I have to say. But that decision was critical in providing and demonstrating the resilience of business aviation, uh, also demonstrating our flexibility. And it was critical to position ourselves Uh, to support central government as a critical part of the UK national infrastructure. So we were allowed to focus on essential flights, uh, many of which were providing critical medical uh, equipment and supplies straight into the capital. Uh, And we were honoured to play a a very small part in that. The secondary gain on that for us, though, Matthew, is uh, our core business. We demonstrated to the business aviation community that uh, Big and Ill had great resilience. And of course, I'm, I'm privileged to be at the head of a, a, an airport that has over 102 years history and has played a prominent part in many challenges this country has faced. And it seemed entirely appropriate we played our part through COVID. Fantastic. So what sort of uh, changes to your infrastructure or to your procedures did you put in place to uh, make this happen? Well, it, Our primary focus from a leadership perspective and a business perspective was to focus on what is core to the business. And it's very much a return to basic principles. If a CEO knows what's core to his business, then you can protect that at a a, a transactional and operational level, knowing what your basics are. And um, a bit like um, any cricketer would tell you, um, if you're struggling in the middle for form, You go back to basics and you get the basics right first. So we knew what was cool to our business. And I knew that at a personal level because I do a lot of back to the floor. And any CEO who does back to the floor, and it's really important, you get visible leadership. You get leadership that knows what is important to the people you're leading. And it allows you then in the crisis to add clarity where there is ambiguity um, to if there is any potential pressure on your team, then you take that burden as the leader. Um, and we very quickly established daily meetings. Uh, and these were more about a battle rhythm than they were about process. And that's really important. when. You... So I was allowed on a daily basis, I got my directors in, I got my heads of department, I got all my critical managers in on Zoom every day. So seven days a week, and we focused on what was core to the business, how can we add clarity where there's ambiguity, and how we can 
relieve any potential pressure from our staff. And being able to do that allowed us to focus on understanding that how we do what we do is just as important about what we do. And that was a lesson that we, we learned very quickly in, in COVID-19. Well, that actually transitions us quite well into our section on leadership. Uh, I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question, and you have touched on quite a bit of it already, but what does the word leader mean to you? Um, I, I was fortunate in my RAF career to spend the last five years, uh, ironically, studying leadership um, and understanding some, some basic core principles. And, and the first one I would, would, would look at is the balance between purpose and identity. And if you know your purpose as a leader and you have a deep understanding of that, it then allows you to look at the identity that you need to purvey to exercise that leadership. And for me, it's about knowing yourself. It's really important on a, an emotional intelligence level. Know your strengths. Know those areas that need fine-tuning and play to them. And what's important there, Matthew, for me, is it, it gives you, if you know yourself, you get a degree of authenticity. And that authenticity builds consistency, and the consistency builds trust. If those you lead know what to expect, they know you've got a handle on the, the, the core basis of the business, and they know that your actions are consistent, then they're going to trust you. And the one thing that you need in a crisis is to develop that inherent trust. Um, we all view the world through different eyes. And if you can spend just a little bit of time on receive <clears throat> rather than transmit, you've got a better understanding of those you lead. If you understand them and you understand yourself, then Quite frankly, Matthew, I think you are you're ninety percent of the way there, and we we focused on that um, throughout the crisis, and not just me at, at every level of leadership throughout the business, um, and that's a, an ethos that we've built early in 2019 when I took over, when we instilled some core values, and those values were grown bottom up, not top down, um, and I know that some of this might seem a bit cliche, but when the chips are down and, uh, and you're dealing with a crisis like COVID-19, it strips away any of that business speak. It strips away any of the facade and you get down to what's really cool and what's really important. And I think what you know, the lessons that we learned is, I think in a crisis of this nature, you have a almost a moral microscope, a societal searchlight that, leaders are under far greater focus and I think from a moral perspective leaders decisions are far more exposed in a crisis when the government is telling people what they can and cannot do when there is a clear right and wrong I think leaders decisions are under the microscope all the more so we as a team spend a lot of time saying well how we do business in this crisis is really important and we need to make sure that our moral compass is is examined on a daily basis. And, and I think you'll have experienced that from the media perspective. When leaders and people in society transgress in a crisis, then they're scrutinized all the more. 
So I know that's a long answer, but it's there's a, there's a lot of when you ask what is leadership. Um, for me, knowing yourself and being authentic and establishing trust is fundamental. Now, of course, uh, leadership comes in many different forms, but it always comes from somewhere. Uh, so let's talk a bit about uh, your background in leadership. Uh, you've had a very interesting career in aviation and in the forces. Um, were you shaped more by role models or by circumstance? Fascinating question. I think um, a balance of both. Look at leadership. You can look at it from a theoretical perspective. You can look at theories and practices. You can read books. Um, and it's not ever one single source. For me, it's about taking nuggets. It's, it's looking at prominent leaders. And I think when we study leadership, there is a, an awful tendency to always look at what good leadership is. And then you miss what toxic leadership could be, what bad leadership could be. And you can learn just as much from looking at theoretically who are, who are people who are described as bad leaders as well as good leaders. So I, I have looked at role models. I've looked at theories and practices. But I think that the stark reality for me is, is it's about what you as an individual experience as a leader um, and, you know, when you go through the good things and the bad things, you have to look at yourself and say, right, okay, so what really are the lessons I've learned from that experience? Not just, you know, blow it away and, and, and look to the next day, but what does it tell me about <clears throat> myself as a leader? And how do I then apply it to the next context, the next hurdle in life? So I took snippets from theories, snippets from individuals, and snippets from direct practical role models. People that I looked at and went, I like that bit. That bit I'm not so comfortable with. Capture the good bits and then learn how to apply those. Um, I am fortunate that I had a, a, a very uh, interesting and challenging military career. And I took themes from that to apply them in a current context. And I think that's fundamental when you're looking at um, what you learn as a leader and, and, and as you develop as a leader is to ensure that you gain that experience, but you have an ability to apply that experience in the current context you find yourself in. And um, I, I found that all the more prevalent uh, during COVID-19 mm. when you are under a crisis and, and you have to go back to some of those very core principles. Now, unfortunately, our time together has drawn to its close. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for London Biggin Hill Airport? Well, it's an exciting time. 2019 was our most successful year, uh, Matthew. So we were positioned very, very well to cope with the crisis. But we also were astute enough to invest. We have a, a £60 million Bombardier hangar well under construction. We will have a brand new four-star hotel uh, early 2022. We will have an aviation college latter part of 2022. And we're already looking at developing a new uh, terminal uh, area and additional Hangridge Airport. So we have worked hard to secure a position as uh, the number one London airport throughout the crisis. And our challenge is, can we maintain that position? But we're at a transitional point, and it's a fantastically exciting time for the airport. And the future is extremely bright, and we are 
very, very excited about it. Well, David, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the program today. And, of course, it'll be fantastic to have you back on for a longer-form podcast at some point in the future. But for now, David, thank you. Thank you very much, Matthew. That was David Winstanley, Chief Executive of London Biggin Hill Airport. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this? Perhaps that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury. Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international cricket or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on. I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive Mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets 
a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that. But perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it's it just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the ashes but also the day after you know that open top bus parade around london and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something, we're all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for Absolutely. Everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived Hold as a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that 
you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed... And this applies, again, to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team. Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there, there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So... You know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it just generally about leading I, I a think team so, okay yes. uh, number one thing about leadership i'm absolutely certain about this is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them mm. and if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have and i've definitely had many um, because 
they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how, um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of cricket at the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so i definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 world cup i thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure um and i knew in order to do that we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move. With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the england captaincies have done to prepare me for the role i, I think i was comfortable leading i was i knew mm. the environment i knew what i was getting myself into and, and in the early days i could leverage some of the relationships that i had with the players but actually i found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were 
Googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah well so was, <laughs> was I yeah. actually yeah <laughs> absolutely um now you in your in your wife's memory you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year uh, in doing so whether you'd admit it or not yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands husbands and wives mothers and fathers sons and daughters please do take some time if you wouldn't mind and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. And so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018... Uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary numbers. Yeah, I mean, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. 
Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them wear <laughs> red trousers anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket um, but more importantly um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day one game a day over a six-week period broadcasters will pay money for that and therefore what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills if you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, 
all the guests, or any other person therein associated.